Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. So let's go to God in prayer before we go to his word. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of worship. And uh, this privilege of joining with one another and worship God, you are not just saving us as individuals, but you're you're saving us into that body of Christ to which you're bringing people from all tribes and tongues and nations as one, as your children. So God, what we have today this morning is just a foretaste, a small gathering, small representation of what one day we will see when all creation will stand before you. And even as we heard read, will praise your son Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords to your glory. This morning, I pray, Father, that uh, you would help us to learn how to live with, as people who have that hope as we look to your word. Teach us by your spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The mission of our church is to engage the city and impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's another way of saying what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that God has commanded us to do. And that's the reason we've been looking at the gospel of Mark, because the gospel of Mark, more than anything else, is a gospel on discipleship. In order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to know who he is, and what does it mean to follow him? And John helps us, to, uh, Mark helps us to see both. He presents us as Jesus, as the one who is the servant king, and calls on us to follow him. Uh, throughout this gospel, we meet uh, various characters from human to uh, evil spirits. And, and they all have a certain response to Jesus, mostly improper and some the right and we have to learn from all of them about what it means to rightly recognize Jesus for who he is and to rightly follow him uh, this morning we um, we meet a couple of people who we have known all along but their response to Jesus is wrong they get his person right but they get their his mission wrong and these are people from his that are closest to him from his inner circle And if they could misunderstand the mission of Jesus and what it means to follow him, how much more we ought to be careful to know who he is and how we ought to follow him. This morning we are going to look at uh, what it means um, to be great. So uh, here's a question for you. Who, Who is the greatest person you know, don't say Jesus. I know you know Jesus. I know Jesus is alive. Uh, and Jesus is a person in that he is fully human as much as he is fully God. But among other people that you know, who do you believe is the greatest person and why? A couple of you share. It could be you, but that could be wrong. <laughs> Good answer. Hey, Carlos. <laughs> Almost had it there. <laughs> My grandfather. Why? He started, he started his own church and it's still going. Very good. Faithfulness and ministry. All right. One more person? 
Uh, before that, Carlos, why is Jennifer so great? Amen. <laughs> Wonderful. Anyone else? Yeah, back there, Edwin. Call Danny and tell him that you think he's the greatest person you know because of what he has done for you in making Christ known to you. Often, greatness and servanthood are placed at the opposite ends of the spectrum of uh, significance in, in life. Uh, can one be great and at the same time be a servant? The world tells us that no, greatness is not serving but being served. Uh, but we learn from the passage we're going to look at this morning that uh, greatness, at least in God's eyes, and as Jesus says it, as for those who follow him, is to follow his example of being a servant. We are uh, in, still in the third section of the Gospel of Mark. We are about to wrap that up. Uh, God, Mark presented Jesus as the Son of God, uh, as the narrator, and then as uh, John the Baptist's proclamation, and as God himself testifies at the baptism. And these, Jesus demonstrates that he is indeed who uh, these voices have said, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God by his works, by his words. And as I said earlier, there are various responses to him. But now from chapter 8, 22 on till the passage with which we will conclude next week, we are in the third section where Jesus goes from Galilee in the north toward the south to Judea to complete his mission. And uh, all along, he not only predicts what he had come for and where he's headed to, uh, and what would it, does it mean to follow him on that way? So today and tomorrow, we're still in the third, uh, next Sunday will be the same section third section, but then we will move on to the fourth section where Jesus is uh, in his final week of life. will continue to do what he does, but at the end of that week will die and rise again. Mark presents this third section in a very creative way. He bookends the, both the beginning and the end of that third section with the healing of a, a blind man. In the first one we saw in chapter 8, uh, it's a two-stage healing where Jesus first touches his eyes and, and he sees but not clearly. He sees men as though they were trees and Jesus touches them again and then he can see clearly. The blind man we will see next week, he already recognizes Jesus for who he is even before he is healed. And once he, Jesus heals him, he does the right thing. He follows. He's an exemplary disciple. And in between, we have the real disciples. And the question Mark wants us to see for their sake and our sake is, are these disciples blind too? If so, will they ever be able to see? Will they just see men like trees? Or will they really see Jesus for who he is and respond appropriately by following him? So Jesus makes three predictions of his passion in this section. Uh, three times he tells them uh, what he, where he said it, what he's going to do, what is going to happen to him. Uh, but all three times the disciples have a wrong response. They misunderstand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And all three times Jesus teaches them on what it means to be a disciple of uh, the one who's headed to complete his mission. All three of his predictions present him as the son of man, the one who has been prophesied by Daniel, the one to whom all power and authority and glory is given. All three mention that Jesus would be killed. 
All three mention resurrection after three days. So the essence of the work of Jesus is presented in all three predictions. The third one we are going to see today has greater detail. Uh, in the first one we were told that the elders and the ruling priests and the experts in the law, the scribes who are the ones who will put him to death. And then in the second one we are told that they are delivering over these ruling priests and experts in the law. Uh, but only now in the third one we find that these uh, religious leaders... Uh, they deliver him over to the Gentiles who will deliver him over to be crucified before that he would be mocked and spit on and, and flogged. So what we learn in this section is that uh, what, is it, what does it mean to be great as Jesus sees greatness? What does it mean to be great as God evaluates greatness? We see it in three sections in Mark 10, 32 to 45. Uh, Jesus' prediction is third one in 32 to 34, that he is the suffering servant. And then the disciples' misplaced quest for greatness that comes from their misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. And then Jesus teaches them about what true discipleship looks like, true greatness. What we see is as much as Peter rightly confessed that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, but completely misunderstood the mission and, and rebuked Jesus when Jesus said he was going to die. So also, as we saw in the second cycle, when Jesus predicts again his death, the disciples respond by arguing amongst themselves as to who is the greatest among them. Even in the third one, we see an inappropriate response. So we read in verses 32 to 34, Jesus' prediction, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. They were on the road. Uh, the road is both a metaphor and a reality. They were literally on the road, on the way. Uh, it's a physical path, but the, the, metaphorically, the way was also the way of discipleship. The early church, before it was called, uh, we were called Christians, they were called people on the way. People on the way of following Jesus. And we're told they are going up to Jerusalem. This is the first time the destination is revealed to where he is headed. Uh, the Messiah's work will be done in uh, in the religious and the political capital of God's people, they are on the road to Zion. But what will happen in Zion is not worship, but something else. Jesus was walking ahead of them, resolute. He knows where he's headed and why. Uh, he, he is not a victim. He, he, he is in control of uh, his destiny. He's on mission. And there were others who were following, and we are told that some of them are amazed, and some of them are afraid. Were they two different groups? We don't know, but uh, possibly so. The group that is amazed is pro probably the disciples. Uh, they have believed, as we have seen uh, from Peter's confession, and uh, even as John and James' statement here, they have believed that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and they're excited. Messiah has come. Messiah is headed to Jerusalem, as they will find out. That could only mean one thing. War against the enemies of God's people. They're excited. They're ready to bring in God's kingdom as the Messiah's followers. But there are also others who are afraid because war is something 
that we need to be afraid of, whether it is war against the oppressors, but they also know there's going to provoke civil war where the religious authorities and leaders are not going to acknowledge what they see as a country hick, as the Messiah. So some are afraid, others are amazed, but amazement is not necessarily an indication of faith as we have seen throughout the Gospel of, Je- of, of Mark. So Jesus takes the 12 ahead of uh, 12 again and he begins to tell them what is going to happen to him. We, we, he, as he often has done throughout this Gospel, he, he gives them private instructions. It, it's, they have the privilege of being, uh, being with Jesus, being taught by Jesus and being sent out on mission by Jesus. So he gathers them again. And he tells them what will happen to him. The, dem- the events that will follow are not a surprise. Jesus is not a victim. He is in control of what is going to happen. He's, he would say elsewhere that he, no one will take away his life. He will lay it down. He knows what God's plan, God's foreordained plans for the Messiah, for him, where, and he's headed to accomplish God's work uh, that to which he had been called. That's what Peter would say in Acts chapter 2 after the Pentecost, in the Pentecost sermon. He would say, uh, this Jesus whom you crucified, yes, at the hands of Gentiles, yes, according to what God has foreordained. They meant it for evil, but it was through their evil that God was going to bring about the salvation of the world through the death and resurrection of his son. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. First time he is telling them where they are headed, their destination. And the Son of Man, used in every prediction, his title, the Son of Man. The Son of Man title points not to his humanity, but to what was prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. That one like the Son of Man would appear before the Ancient of, ancient of Days. And to him will be given all authority. To him will belong the dominion. To him will belong all worship from all nations. It is that one, the Son of Man. Later on in Mark chapter 14, it is that claim that he is the Son of Man that would bring about the charge of blasphemy against him by which he was crucified. He is the Son of Man, but he is crucified as a blasphemer for what he claims is for his truthful claim. And Jesus tells them that he will be delivered over to the chief priest, delivered over by whom? It's unmentioned here, but delivered over by God according to his foreordained plan. Delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, that the religious leaders, and they will condemn him to death. Uh, the word for condemn is, is through a legal process. Uh, he's been tried and convicted that one, as one deserving of death. And since they did not have the power to put anyone to death, they would deliver him over, deliver him over to the Gentiles. Uh, that's how much they despise Jesus, and, and that's their contempt for Jesus and his messianic claims. And we are told they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. We know that the mocking and the spitting and the flogging uh, was done by both the, the, in the religious trial and also the political trial. And it's, the, it's Pilate who would hand him over to be crucified by his soldiers. And then Jesus concludes his prediction. And after three days he will rise again. Resurrection is predicted in every one of those uh, three predictions he makes. But every time it's completely ignored. They knew of a resurrection that would happen at the end of the ages when God will raise up everyone. But a resurrection in time, that's not something they knew about. And it's better, those of us who teach, now if you don't know something, you better not ask any questions about that. Because it may reveal your ignorance. So they, they don't say anything about his resurrection. But they do have a response. And it's not one that we expect. 
So we read in verses 35 to 41. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and or, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they've been with Jesus right from the beginning. They were among the first who were called, Peter, Andrew, then James, and John. And they're also part of that inner circle. That Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to places where he does not take the others. When Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, these three were with him. In the Mount of Transfiguration, they were with him. On top of that, James and John are probably related to Jesus. And Salome, their mother, and Mary are related. And they feel that there's a place of privilege for them, not just in the present, but also in the future. Uh, so they, they, Jesus calls them Boanerges, sons of thunder. Uh, they had this explosive temperament. They're the ones who wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. And here they are uh, asking Jesus for uh, something to be granted them. We want, to, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. This carte blanche approval from Jesus even before they ask. It's kind of like uh, what children sometimes do. Uh, this is a, this kind of like a testing the waters. It's like a prelude to uh, this, the audacious request they're going to make. Uh, messianic expectations are high as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. And, and this is a great opportunity to beat the crowd, to find a, a fitting place of significance in the Messiah's rule. It's a lot of our presidential contenders. They're not really running for president. They're hoping for a place in the cabinet afterwards. That's how politics works. And disciples are not beyond politics. So Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? It's almost like you can hear a note of sarcasm there. Really? <laughs> like a parent who come, and a child comes and says, I want you to promise something. Like, Hold on a second. <laughs> I'm not making any promises without hearing what it is. And, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. In your glory. Jesus is going to come in glory, but they're not seeing Jesus' coming in glory as, as the glory that will be his after he has accomplished the work of suffering on the cross. But they're expecting Jesus to come in the, the glory of the messianic kingdom as he enters into Jerusalem and defeats the Roman oppressors and put them in their place. The disciples had the same question after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1. They see Jesus rise from the dead. Even death couldn't stop him. Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said, no, it's not for you to know for it's time for you to go. Uh, wait in Jerusalem and the spirit comes on you. Go to the ends of the earth. Proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. But even here... You can't blame them. They've been on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They've seen his glory. And Jesus had said something like, uh, uh, some of you who are present will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. So the positive take on this, if you can say that, is that these have, they have believed Peter's confession that Jesus one is indeed the Messiah. You've got to give them that. 
Not only that, he's going to be the victorious Messiah. Unlikely as it seems, this Messiah, because he is the Messiah when he enters into Jerusalem, he will defeat Rome and his glory will be established. So they get Jesus right, but they get his mission wrong. Because they want to skip the cross. Because for Jesus, it was cross first and then glory. And they make this appalling, absurd request of uh, what Jesus completely ignoring what Jesus had told them after the second prediction where uh, while he was predicting his death they were arguing amongst themselves who will be the greatest and Jesus had told them at that time the greatest among you shall be the first among you will be last but apparently didn't register they have not listened as I'm often guilty of um, they're still like that blind man who sees but something Maybe men like trees. So they maybe see just Jesus is the Messiah. But they don't fully understand what the Messiah's purposes are. Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 19, 28. Mark does not uh, include this in his gospel. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Yes, but it's not enough for them to be one among the twelve. We want right hand and left hand and look who they cut out from the closest group. Peter's out. <laughs> so yeah, that's what inner circle and all is good but we are relatives Jesus. Didn't you hear what he said about being last? Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You do not know. You're clueless. Their quest is misguided. They have not considered the gravity of Jesus' prediction concerning his messianic role. Jesus does not rebuke them. He redirects their quest for greatness. He states the qualification. Qualification for greatness is to... Be able to drink of the cup and be baptized with his baptism. The, that those two are metaphors, cup and baptism. Uh, the, to, the cup could be a cup of blessing as we see in Psalm 23. My cup runneth over. But most often the cup is a cup of God's wrath, God's judgment. Jesus himself will uh, speak of that in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, If it is your will, take this cup away from me. But that's the cup that Jesus will drink. The cup of God, God's wrath against sin of human beings and baptism is also a, a metaphor for being deluged, being overwhelmed with suffering and, and Jesus is going to experience that and Jesus asked them are you able to undergo this baptism and drink this cup? They will drink uh, as we will see that cup and they will be baptized but not in the same, for the same reason as Jesus will do that. In Luke chapter 12 Jesus would use that metaphor of baptism for his suffering that that he's awaiting a baptism, even though he has already been baptized by John. That's a baptism of uh, suffering that he will have on the cross. And they said to him, we are able, like Bob the Builder. Yes, we can. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, I watched lots of those Bob the Builder shows since my kids were grown. One, it's actually in the original language, one word answer. Dunameta, we are able. In one sense, it's noble. They have a commitment. Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem. There's going to be war. Uh, they want places of honor, but they're willing to fight for it. We will suffer with you, Jesus. We'll do whatever it takes. We will die if needed to. But, you know, we'd like to have that reward. 
right hand and left hand. Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which you am baptized, you will be uh, baptized. Jesus affirms that they will indeed bear the cost of their commitment, but not in ways that they envision. They will suffer with them. James will be the first martyr of the church. And uh, John would be the last apostle to die, not in his bed, but exiled in the Isle of Patmos. But Jesus goes on to say, But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Prepared by whom? It is his Father who has the prerogative, his sovereign right, to determine when the Son will return. As Jesus has said earlier, also determines who will sit at his right hand and who will sit at his right hand, uh, on his left. Uh, here nothing is mentioned about who it is reserved for, but we know from the context the first will be last. So places of honor in the kingdom of God is left for those who are the lowliest, who will receive the kingdom as a child. And what matters in the kingdom is not merit to be earned, but humble, humble submission to the place that God has determined for us in his kingdom. So only people in the narrative as Mark unfolds who will be at Jesus' right hand and left hand are two thieves. One of whom will trust one of them doesn't. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. It's not righteous anger saying, how could you ask something like this? No. They are angry that James and John beat them to the punch. They called dips on this. Why did we think of that first? Oh man, these guys are going to get it first. And you know, as much as Peter in his rebuke of Jesus represented the twelve, uh, as we know from the next episode, when all 12 of them are arguing who's the greatest here, James and John are not alone. The others had the same desire in their hearts to be greatest in uh, the Messiah's cabinet. So they too share in the guilt of James and John. Jesus goes on to teach them what true discipleship, true greatness in God's kingdom looks like. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Another huddle. Come back together again. You guys got it wrong. Uh, another private lesson. They consistently fail to understand rightly and respond appropriately. But Jesus doesn't give up on them. That's the good news. That's true of us as well. We consistently get it wrong about who he is and how we are to follow him. He doesn't give up on us and he continues to teach us. And uh, here we have the climactic section of his teaching concerning his discipleship. Uh, you know, uh, there are two parallel sentences here. First, he talks to them about what they know. You know, what is it that they know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them? And the rulers of the Gentiles are the great ones who exercise authority, not in the right sense, over the people to whom and who have been placed under them. So this common knowledge, all they had to do is look at the Romans and the uh, family of Herod about how the rulers of the world rule. They rule by power, they rule by coercion, they dominate, uh, their, their dominion is one of, uh, it's in a negative sense, they oppress people. Interestingly, Mark's, uh, Jesus says, you know, those who are considered rulers, you know, they, they may be rulers, but they are that because God has placed them in that place and God will hold them accountable. So if we have a problem with our rulers, take it to God. He is able to deal with them. But there's something they don't know, that is, it shall not be so among you. The, he just uses the present tense. This is not how it is. 
not how it shall be. It's not how it is. This is the reality of the kingdom of God. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. Servant and slave can be used synonymously, but slave is a, a lower place uh, of subjection um, and um, a lower class of uh, humans as people are considered in that hierarchy. But there's this intensification, not only a servant, but a slave, not just a slave, but a slave of all. Uh, life in the kingdom is a radically other-centered service. Uh, worldly values are turned upside down, or as uh, someone say, right side up. And the example is Jesus himself, for even the Son of Man. Even, it's an important word, even the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man in Daniel 7? It is the one to whom all authority has been given. It is the one who shares in God's glory. He is the one who is worthy of all worship. If there was anyone who deserves to be served and not serve, it would be that one. But even that one, Jesus says he himself, would not, did not come to be served, but to give, but to serve. Uh, we see that in John chapter 13, Jesus, knowing all authority has been given to him, what does he do? He uh, disrobes, put on the towel, and washes feet. Um, same thing in Philippians chapter 2. Even though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to hold on to, because it's already his. But instead of holding on to it and claiming his rights and privileges thereof, he becomes one of us, not just any of us, a slave, not just any slave, but a slave would die on the cross. And all that for our sake. And to give his life, his life as a ransom for many. Three times he's told them that he would die, but this is the first time he tells them why he would die. That he would die as a ransom. The word is used for redeeming someone or something by paying a price. And this is where we get the idea of substitutionary atonement. Uh, we owe a debt to God that we cannot repay uh, because God is an infinite person. And our debt against Him is an infinite debt and we can't pay. But uh, there's nothing we can do. Well, every religion is about that. Make your way to God and, and do it yourself. But our faith tells us that there's nothing we can do. It's impossible. We are slaves to our sin. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ is our ransom. He has paid our debt. This morning if you're here, if you're not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are like all of us who were born into this world, slaves of sin. But you have the opportunity to change your master. There's no in-between. You have one master or another. You're born as slaves of sin and that master pays a great wage. You know what the wage of sin is? Death. If we do not turn to Jesus in faith, we will continue on in that slavery to death, to eternal death and separation from God. But God does not want us to go there because we are his people. He, we were, humans were made in his image, so God has made a way through his son Jesus Christ that whoever believes in him, that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Being, this, being fully God and fully man, he has paid our debt. And those who trust in him, are freed from their slavery to sin and brought under the dominion of his son. And this master, he doesn't pay you wages. He gives you a gift. And what gift does he give you? Eternal life. Something we can't earn. This morning, would you make that great exchange if you would? Turn away from your slavery to sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus and you have God's word that you have new life as God's child. Those of you who have, don't think that you are free to do your own thing. Because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, you are not your own. You've been bought at a price. We belong to the Lord Jesus. That's freedom. To belong to the Lord Jesus, to have him as our master. To be our own master is still slavery. 
Because we are the biggest slave masters of ourselves. True freedom is receiving Christ as our Lord. Would you do that if you're here this morning? If you have not trusted in Christ, come and talk to us. We would like to help you see more about what does it mean to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. All, not just gospel passages, all passages are ultimately about Jesus. And Mark writes to know, that help us to see who Jesus is and what does it mean to follow him. He is the Lord of glory and the suffering servant. His authority is fully on display here. Even as he walks to die a shameful death, it is he who has the authority. It is he who is Lord. He is front and center, resolute on his mission. And the mission is to die a shameful death for the sake of others, knowing fully well that he is the son of man. So the Daniel passage is important. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you believe? James and John said, yes, we believe. Give us a seat on your right and your left. <laughs> but that same Jesus is also the one who was prophesied by Isaiah in 52 and 53. I'll just read a couple of verses from 53, verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. What? He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. He's the son of man. Yes, sir. He's, also, he's a Lord of glory, the Daniel presence. But yet that pathway to glory is through the obedience of even to death on a cross. In obedience to God's will for him. For our sake and for the sake of others. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above all names. The one who is the Lord of glory is also the suffering servant. And that's what the disciples could not accept. How could he be the Messiah, the Lord of glory, and also the one who does this, dies this shameful death at the hands of his enemies? Scripture says that kind of a suffering Messiah is a foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, and it still is. That kind of stumbling block and foolishness can only be overcome by God's grace. But we continue to proclaim the same message of Christ crucified, as Paul did. And it is through that foolishness that God brings people to himself. Because there is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. But what about us, those who have come? Are we still, are we like James and John? Or are we too the sons of Zebedee, children of Zebedee? We're all cut from the same cloth as the sons of Zebedee and other disciples. We too are children of Adam, you know, who, uh, who reached for the forbidden fruit because he was not content with being in the image of God, but wanted to pursue a greatness that Satan promised, be like God. Who wants this image of God business, right? We are the children of Adam, um, like Adam, who would want to judge for himself what is good and evil. Didn't want to learn it from God. We too decide for ourselves what we want to do. We may not be as crass as uh, James and John making these audacious demands in places we shouldn't. 
unless you're running for president or something, then you can make all kinds of demands. You know? But uh, our temptations for greatness uh, take much more uh, subtle forms. Uh, the use of authority. Authority is good. Everybody wants authority, whether it's in home, between, uh, in families, or in your workplace, or in church. Authority is a good thing. Jesus has all authority. And yet he's the humble servant. So authority itself is not the problem. But why we seek authority to, for status, for position, for privilege, uh, for prestige. Uh, all of these are uh, seeking to be the greatest for the, uh, through the wrong means. But having authority for the sake of service uh, is necessary and uh, a godly thing. So let's just make sure how we desire and why we desire and how we use authority. Ambition. That's, you know, every job interview they ask you, what do you hope to be five years from now? You know, what is your ambition? I hated that question. I, I, was, I was always wondering what people said in 2015 about 2020. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be wearing a mask and staying home. Uh, <laughs> I would have gotten them hard, right? No, but there is good ambition in the scripture. Paul three times speaks of his ambition. In, in, in Romans 15, he says he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel where it has not been preached. That was his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. So it makes it his ambition. His ambition is to fulfill his calling. He also says in 2 Corinthians 5 that his ambition is to, find, to, to please God. That's a wonderful ambition to have, to please God. In, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says it, it, makes it, it makes it his ambition to lead a quiet life. Not poke his nose in other people's business. Yeah. Uh, those are all good things, but most often we are not more uh, tempted by this. When in our quest for greatness, we, we are motivated by selfish ambition, where we are pursuing our own interests and not God's calling, where we are trying to please ourselves and not the Lord, where we are about everybody else's business except ours. Competence could be a place where could become a quest for greatness, Competence is a good thing. Elders are people uh, who are people who are able to teach and are able to discern truth from falsehood. Timothy is told to rightly handle the word of truth. Um, we need to be careful who is who teaches the word of God. But when it becomes a prideful seeking of greatness, when one sees themselves as the most competent one and does not. Permit others to try, even if they may not be as competent as they are. Possessions can become a quest for greatness. You know, God grants power to make wealth, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6. So it's not possessions that are wrong, but when possessions become a quest for greatness, the love of money is the beginning of evil because it becomes status-seeking where he who dies with the most toys wins. You know, most of the toys end up in the attic. Prayer could become a quest for greatness in a selfish sense. It's a gift from God. We humble ourselves before God and express our dependence in prayer. Uh, our prayers indicate the desires of our heart. That's what James and John did. Give us whatever we ask. Grant us the desire of our hearts. But prayers can become uh, an expression of our Selfish quest for greatness. Uh, one writer says, uh, Would we look like shameless gold diggers if our prayer requests were made public? Who hurts? Uh, but God does want us to be great. 
Jesus didn't tell James and John, don't be great, but he told them how they could be great. So Christian life and ministry is not a shameless seeking after glory. We follow the Lord who gave himself to a shameless, a shameful death for our sake. So worldly notions of rank and honor and privilege are out of place in the church. Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday and uh, we honor this weekend, he said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. So being great like Jesus is, by, is to serve like Jesus did. That is to suffer for the sake of others. We saw that last Sunday, didn't we? It has been granted to you not only to believe, but also suffer. It's been granted. Uh, James and John, Jesus tells them here that they would suffer. And they did. For the sake of Jesus. Not for some ungodly quest. The early disciples considered it to be an honor to suffer for the sake of the name. And they were beaten for proclaiming Jesus. Paul says he, he fills up in his flesh what was still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. That is in the proclamation of his work. His work was complete. He speaks of coming to know Christ by participating in his suffering. In suffering for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. We know him better experientially. Peter assures the Christians of uh, Asia Minor that. Suffering is part of their calling in Christ, in following after Jesus. But the good news is, after suffering comes vindication. As much as Jesus, who in obedience to the Father, suffered death on the cross, was raised from the dead. Vindicated that he was indeed who he claims to be. He is the Son of Man, to whom belongs all authority. And when we suffer for the sake of his name, when we participate in his suffering, we too know that we will be vindicated. We're told as much as we follow the one who for the sake of the joy set before him suffered the shame of the cross. When we share in his suffering, we share in his glory. But that order is important. Suffering and then glory. Jesus promises in, in Revelation to his suffering people, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. I'll conclude with uh, these words from Peter in 1 Peter 5, 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the, right, the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And how he does that is by setting you off in some quest for greatness like he did with Adam and continues to do through the ages. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people say... Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.